0: I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Power for Refugees, a two-part Undercurrents podcast special. From Afghanistan to Sudan and Ukraine, the world is grappling with the consequences that emerge when people are forced to flee from their homes. One factor that does not usually make the headlines is that many people displaced by conflict or natural disasters lack access to the energy services that are necessary for forging dignified lives and livelihoods. Since 2015, the Environment and Society Programme at Chatham House has been researching this issue and convening dialogues to spur action by humanitarian organisations, energy companies and others. Our heat, light and power report provided the first ever comprehensive assessment of access to energy in refugee camps and urban areas with high numbers of refugees, and it's linked in the show notes. Since then, we've continued this work through the Renewable Energy for Refugees project, which provides access to affordable and sustainable sources of renewable energy and improves the health and well-being and security of refugees and neighbouring communities. In this Power for Refugees podcast special, I'll be finding out about some of the solutions tested by our project partners. In this first episode, we're focusing on access to electricity. Approximately 94% of refugees do not have access to electricity to heat or cool hospitals, schools or dwellings, or to light streets. In what follows, I speak to some of our project partners based in Ethiopia, Kenya and Rwanda Shedding light on what's worked and what has not. I hope you enjoy listening. First up, I spoke to Laura Clark, a project manager with the development charity Practical Action, who for several years was involved with the attempt to create a solar hybrid mini-grid system for displaced communities living in three different camps in Rwanda. I began by asking Laura about the market-based approach Practical Action takes to their work.
1: Practical Action has got a long history of working in energy access programmes, particularly for marginalised and off-grid communities. And we have considerable experience, particularly in clean cooking and renewable off-grid electricity solutions. And really our aim has been previously working with rural communities in particular and really providing the access to energy and the solutions that people need to help lift themselves out of poverty. And certainly on Ari 4 we saw an opportunity by partnering with others in the humanitarian space to bring our energy access experience into the humanitarian setting and make sure that our approaches, particularly in market systems and market strengthening approaches, um, were applied into those settings as well. Our opportunity here was to look at particularly our, our experience and our previous work in doing market systems development and market strengthening and really being able to bring that into the humanitarian setting looking at um, energy access solutions for households, for enterprises and for institutions and community facilities as well.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you so much for laying that out. Could you maybe tell me a bit more about your particular approach that you mentioned there, this kind of market-based approach? How does it differ from traditional approaches by aid agencies in the humanitarian sector and, and what value do you think it brings?
1: So uh, not just energy needs, but the whole range of needs in the humanitarian settings are often delivered by uh, traditional aid models uh, looking at free distribution for food, non-food items, and also the the full range of needs that refugees may have in those displaced settings. What we have really tried to bring into Ari Farah and building on um, some of Practical Action's previous work in the Moving Energy Initiative, looking at strengthening and supporting local markets, we feel that that gives um, opportunities for refugees and displaced communities to be able to choose the products and services that best address their needs and also helps to strengthen economic activity and income generating activities, both for the refugee and displaced communities themselves, but also for the local community. Then by strengthening and supporting those markets, by avoiding uh, those traditional kind of free distribution or donation programs, the intention is that that will set a more sustainable model that allows the market and the local economy to continue to provide, particularly in this case for energy, particularly to provide those energy products and services that people want and need in the longer term after the project has finished, after the interventions have finished, so that those benefits that access to energy brings are sustained long beyond the end of the project.
0: That's really fascinating. Thank you. I'd like to turn now to the specific interventions that you were making as part of the re for r project and your work uh, practical actions work focused on three different refugee camps within Rwanda I wonder could you tell us a bit about the context of those camps and the, sort of where the energy access that communities were were gaining what was their kind of energy mix and and how was that provided before this project began?
1: Right. So at the start of the project, we did a very comprehensive assessment in the three camps that we intended to work in in Rwanda to really understand the energy landscape and the uh, settings for each of those camps. And at the start of the project, we found that energy access in the main was low. Most households had no access to any form of electricity, people were using mobile phones for lighting in their homes and very often uh, candles or very basic lighting solutions in their homes. We also found that predominantly for uh, cooking, people were reliant on the most basic of cook stoves, uh, mud stoves and three stone fires and were using firewood or in some cases charcoal to do most of their cooking. We also found that Very few of the community spaces and communal spaces had access to electricity. There was no lighting in access areas or public spaces in the camps. And also the institutional facilities, particularly in the case of Nyabaheki, which is the, the case that we're looking at today, the institutional facilities and the water pumping were powered by diesel generators that were characterized by outages and disruptions in the in the in the power supply from those diesel generators. So um, in the round, we found that energy access was at quite a low level for for households and for enterprises and a bit of a mixed picture in terms of the institutional and community facilities in some of the other camps. Some of the institutional offices, the hospitals and so on, were connected to the national grid, but that grid connection hadn't then extended to refugees themselves. It was very much focused on the um, institutional users within the camp. When we looked at the three camps that we were working in in Rwanda, two of the camps had grid connections for those institutional users, and the third camp, Nyabaheki, was powered by two diesel generators, which were used for pumping water for the whole of the camp also, some of the institutional facilities, such as a hospital, the WFP compound, a library and some offices. And there was also a distribution leg powering a variety of refugee shops and enterprises such as a carpenter, a salon, uh, a tailoring shop, those types, of, uh, those types of small businesses. The largest load by far was the water pumping, followed by the refugee enterprises. And for the institutional users, the consumption was actually minimal. Those diesel generators were operated by a partner in the camp and were paid for by UNHCR. And that power supply was, there were quite common outages and the diesel generators were often waiting for technical support or for spares. And although the area around the camp itself was designated as on grid in the Rwanda electrification plan, this had not extended into the camp itself. So although some of the surrounding host community areas did have grid connection, The camp itself and and the users within the camp are still very much reliant on these diesel generators.
0: So what specific approach were you advocating then to sort of move away from these diesel generators?
1: What we wanted to do was support a market-based approach and establish a model that enabled other users to access and pay for the electricity provided by that mini-grid especially those underserved enterprises. So not just the ones that were connected to the diesel diesel generators, also other enterprises that we knew were operating in the camp. And as well as the enterprises, some of the community facilities that were in place in the camp, such as wash facilities, churches, and community halls. So we wanted to not just replace existing system, we also wanted to extend it to new users, new enterprises, new community facilities so that we could reach more people with that energy access. We also wanted to mitigate the use of diesel and offset the carbon emissions that were associated with using diesel as a a source of energy. And then we wanted to, alongside the actual installation of the hardware, we wanted to provide training and employment for refugees in the operation and maintenance of the grid itself and also then use that energy, the electricity provided by that solar grid, to power some of those uh, enterprises that were also participating in uh, productive uses of energy for livelihoods component of the project. And lastly, our last aim was that we wanted to demonstrate that these types of solar mini grids could be cost effective, they could be more reliable than the diesel generators, um, and that they could be implemented in humanitarian settings so that solar electricity services and private sector delivery models uh, we wanted to demonstrate that they could work in these settings so those were the main aims of what we wanted to do from from the intervention to replace those existing diesel generators with a solar mini grid
0: thanks and and did you encounter any obstacles in in actually trying to get that implemented and I guess as you were advocating this approach, was there pushback from certain sectors?
1: What we we did an assessment phase of the project where we we, we were trying to understand the energy landscape as a whole, um, and we particularly asked some of the institutional users about their consumption, what their needs and priorities would be, and we also did a round of initial consultations, surveys, and then a co-design workshop where we selected the mini grid intervention along with other key stakeholders in the camp. So certainly, at the assessment phase, there was good good buy-in and we had good feedback and a good understanding of at least the concept. We then did a very detailed feasibility study comparing the diesel options with the solar options. And we also evaluated potential business models, potential ownership models, uh, for example, looking at how we could balance tariffs to make sure that um, we could include those entrepreneurs and those underserved users in the camps. And we also set out how a mini-grid solution could achieve all of those objectives that we set out above. So that was all outlined in a a detailed feasibility study that we completed. What actually happened then um, was at the point of selecting the model from that feasibility study, we posed a number of options um, with different, uh, different configurations, different business models, different ownership models. At the point of selecting that model and then moving on into a procurement process and initiating in particular the the permitting process, getting the authorization to install that mini-grid. What actually happened was UNHCR Rwanda decided to connect the water pumping and the institutional offices to the national grid by paying for an extension for that national grid from the surrounding host community areas uh, into the camp. So um, at that point, that meant that one of the key assumptions, one of the key planning assumptions for our feasibility study i.e. that uh, UNHCR and the institutional users would be an anchor customer for the solar mini grid that assumption no longer held true and it meant that the plans and the options that we had proposed in the feasibility study were actually no longer viable because the grid connection um, had come in and was the best option for the water pumping and the institutional users. It meant that the, the solar Mini grid that we had proposed was no longer feasible. We couldn't then proceed into the procurement. And in fact, we, we didn't then install a solar mini grid in that camp. Actually, the, the, the camp and the water pumping was then powered by the national grid extension. So, what happened in effect was that um, at the point of mu- selecting the model that we wanted to implement and moving into procurement, and in particular, initiating the permitting process with the energy authorities in Rwanda, Uh, UNHCR Rwanda actually decided to connect the water pumping and the institutional offices to the national grid, and they paid for an extension into the camp. And that meant that the anchor customer, or one of our key planning assumptions, that UNHCR and the institutional users in the camp would be an anchor customer for that solar mini grid. That assumption was taken away, and our feasibility study and the options that we had proposed in there were no longer Viable, So that meant that we couldn't then proceed with the installation of the solar mini-grid. And in effect, we we then cancelled that intervention. So uh, a bit of a mixed picture there. Uh, A good outcome overall, in fact, that now those users have a reliable energy connection. But unfortunately, we didn't manage to achieve some of those other aims that we wanted to achieve from the solar mini-grid. And maybe if I can just add one further reflection with that switch from the diesel generators to the national grid... Initially, the installation of the grid line provided a solution for the water pumping and the institutional users, but the refugee businesses that had previously been connected to the generators were unable to connect to that national grid extension. So in effect, they were disconnected from the energy use that they had previously had from the diesel generators. And then we also had a challenge in that the... Authorities who control the national grid and the extension of it were unwilling to reconnect those refugee enterprises in the camp because of concerns over the safety of the buildings that those enterprises were housed in. They were also very uncertain about the ability of those refugee entrepreneurs to pay. So they they were reluctant to give them their own energy connection. And there were also concerns about informal connections in the camp and the safety implications of that as well. So they were very concerned that the infrastructure in the camps wasn't suitable to connect those refugee users. It was safe and, and well-controlled and well-managed for the water pumping and the institutional energy users, but was more problematic for those refugee uh, entrepreneurs that had previously been connected for the diesel uh, to the diesel grid. So um, as a solution to that, because we obviously didn't want to leave those uh, businesses in a position where part of their livelihoods had been taken away or their energy access has been taken away, we then built a purpose-built business centre in the camps, which had all the safety and the quality requirements that the utility company needed, and then we installed another extension from the national grid to power that business centre. And then we rehoused those businesses and a number of other businesses into that business centre so that they could then have the connection that they needed to continue their business. Again, a good outcome in terms that they had the energy access that they needed, um, but a a grid-connected solution rather than a solar solution. So achieved some of the outcomes, but not perhaps in the way that we expected it at the start.
0: Yeah, that's that's really fascinating reflection. Thank you. Um, so I suppose if you were putting together any kind of recommendations or sort of lessons learned from this whole exercise, if we wanted to sort of pilot this model elsewhere, maybe maybe the mini grid system is totally suited to other areas. And it's just coincidental timing, I suppose, that this national grid opportunity came along. What would you say to other, other projects and organisations that want to kind of adopt these sorts of approaches?
1: So I think one of the key challenges that we encountered along the way was the uncertainties about the electrification of the refugee camps itself. So we had a good understanding of the uh, national electrification plan, but it was uncertain as to whether the camps themselves were included in that. So the host area around the camp was included in the electrification plan. And and as it happened, the the local host community were connected, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the entirety of the refugee camp would be in a position to benefit from that rollout. And there's a bit of a grey, or that we certainly encountered a bit of a grey area as to whether it was designated as an on-grid location, but that didn't necessarily extend to refugee households or refugee businesses itself, particularly because of these safety concerns over the infrastructure and the suitability of, of connecting those users in the camp. So I think understanding... The designation of on-grid areas and electrification rollout and getting clarity on what that means for different users in the camp is a a key component of of, uh, our experience on RE4R. And also, had we gone ahead with the solar mini-grid, there was a lengthy multi-stage authorisation programme, and I think that that was also a concern for uh, other stakeholders who were potentially going to be connected to this solar mini-grid, was that at any of the stages through that, multi-stage process we could have encountered problems along the way and so it wasn't necessarily well, what we would have had to do to get through each of those hoops was really build confidence really made sure that everybody was involved uh, and really make sure that we we got through each stages of that to see that through to completion so we had a good understanding of what the process was but it was still a lengthy multi-stage complex process to get through to actually get the solar grid installed had we managed to get as far as getting it procured and installed. So I think that's one of the challenges around the regulatory environment and understanding uh, what that means for various users in and around the camps. I think one of the other reflections that we had was about um, understanding the financial viability of the solar systems. Our feasibility study looked in detail at the comparison of diesel and solar solutions but hadn't necessarily considered the options for the national grids in as much detail as we had looked at the solar options and I think in many situations if you prioritize the sort of cost of the energy it's quite difficult for some of those solar or more innovative solutions to be competitive when you just look at it on a cost basis And that's why we were very keen to emphasise the other outcomes that we thought a solar mini-grid would be able to achieve in terms of allowing other users to connect, allowing this balanced tariff model to allow underserved users to be able to connect. But actually, when you look at just the cost, for particularly for institutional users or for the water pumping itself, it's potentially difficult for those more innovative solutions to compete with a grid connection type of solution. So I think understanding that, understanding the objectives and the priorities in terms of aims of what other users might want to achieve, because it's completely understandable that for the person paying the bill, actually, potentially the cheapest option is always going to be the best, even if it's not necessarily the best in terms of carbon emissions or in terms of employment opportunities or in terms of demonstrating a model. So I think getting that alignment in terms of what are the most important priorities is really important. And then also understanding what is a fair cost comparison when you're looking at the um, looking at the wider environment, particularly taking into account grid connections and electrification programs
0: that's fantastic. thank you. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in relation to this project?
1: Yeah, I think maybe one of the Um, components has been a key part of the success of RE4R is trying to adopt what we talk about as a total energy access approach, which is where we try to cover the energy access needs of households, enterprises and communities and institutional users in the round. And rather than looking at individual solutions, this is a solution for households. This is a solution for enterprises. This is a solution for communities. Uh, the mini-grid solution could have been a very nice cross-cutting renewable energy intervention that could have addressed multiple needs for multiple users. And I think what we would advocate for is that taking that approach, taking a look at those cross-cutting solutions that can provide energy access for multiple users, it's been a really important part of the success of re 4 and I think there's a lot of opportunity for that in the future, particularly with the greening the blue agenda, not just looking at how we can... Decarbonize or move to cleaner solutions for institutional users, but thinking how those solutions can also benefit refugee communities themselves, small businesses, other people in displaced settings is a real opportunity for the future. There's a big drive, uh, right, rightly so, a big prioritisation of, of greening uh, humanitarian operations, but there's also a big opportunity there in terms of benefiting or extending that energy access to a wide range of people and, and really getting that energy access to people who really, really need it in those settings.
0: Absolutely. Laura Clark. thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks. It's, it's been a pleasure.
0: Next, I was joined by Emmanuel Adziabor, a regional energy advisor at the NGO Mercy Corps who was involved with the Enter Energy for Ethiopia project, an initiative which aims to support the government's work to provide energy to displaced communities within the country. I began by asking Emmanuel to set out the context behind the project and the energy access issues displaced communities face in Ethiopia.
2: Thank you very much for the opportunity to to speak to your audience on this. So the Enter Energy Ethiopia uh, project is an initiative between Mercy Corps and a number of public-spirited, private and the public organizations uh, that really seek to develop a new new model for electricity access in refugee camps. And this really works to strengthen uh, the government of Ethiopia's uh, Plans towards electrification in some of these difficult uh, settings, as well, and also uh, directly contributes to the comprehensive refugee response uh, framework uh, that's been signed between uh, the government of Ethiopia and UNHCR. Uh, Over the course of this uh, two year uh, phase, which is the two year inception phase, we really sought to define uh, what is the appropriate social enterprise model that will allow electricity to be sustainably developed and supplied and maintained to displaced communities uh, in Ethiopia. And uh, once this becomes successful, we intend to scale this up to other regions within within Africa and and globally. Within Ethiopia, we basically sought to test this pilot in a a region called uh, a Somali region. Uh, So Somali region is one of the the very adaptive regions, uh, the safe regions uh, so far for for private sector investments of this kind. And within the Somali region, there are a number of uh, refugee camps. But we sought to test this idea in one of the Jijiga uh, refugee camps, uh, specifically the, the Sheda camp. Within the Sheda camp, based on our initial assessments, we found out there are acute needs for energy for humanitarian and UN agencies. We found out also there is acute energy for household electrification, energy for Small businesses, productive uses that needed this to power uh, livelihood-related activities, and also energy for clean cooking. These were some of the key outcomes of that initial study that uh, we conducted to really identify which areas will require or which areas our support will be much more uh, beneficial to, to communities uh, that, that we serve. So we started trying to further understand the communities further understand the need in this shared account, and also looking at the broader legal regulatory and the commercial environment uh, that will uh, allow or enable the efficient deployment of this this model. Since the private sector is involved, we also want to set up a model that is self-sustaining into the future that could also be very scalable uh, not only in Ethiopia, but uh, regionally and uh, globally as well. So this is what we've been Trying to do for the past two years, and at least we have achieved some key milestones that will allow us now to move into full-scale deployment of this pilot uh, in the next few months. That's
0: brilliant. Thank you for the overview. There, could you maybe tell us a bit more then about the particular approach that you were advocating and and testing in this particular phase? So, with this particular
2: phase, since uh,
0: a pilot we're really
2: looking at, and the goal of uh, this pilot is really to understand, further strengthen the the, the business model, and then being able to prove a pathway to to scale uh, for this. And this becomes like a global blueprint uh, kind of uh, for looking at energy assets in displacement settings. And uh, over here, we are looking at what will be the required energy for an average household to comfortably live in their houses and also energy that could also be supplied for productive uses, and also for humanitarian institutions. So we, on the technical side, after having looked at the data that's provided in the household energy aspirations, we decided to go for a mini grid model, which in this case will provide enough energy for household and also for productive uses and other humanitarian institutions in the camps who would be able to use this energy for their operations. So we're basically looking at the standard ABC model for, for mini grids where we meet all the key requirements for clientele in a single technical design. And this we have uh, managed to achieve, uh, having been able to bring on board some key anchor clients, in this case, humanitarian institutions. We are looking at even Mexico as an entity being able to source its energy supply for operations from this mini grid model. And then we further studied the requirements of small businesses and the energy that will be required for agricultural, transformation, productive uses in this camp. And then at the household level, we did extensive studies with our technical partners uh, to be able to estimate and also extrapolate ideally what would be the energy requirements and aspirations uh, for households. So this goes into our technical mini grid design. On the financial, the business model side, we did extensive studies uh, on the regulatory requirements and also being convinced that Ethiopia is not uh, one of the, the greatest countries especially when it comes to the ease of doing business so this is really it's very critical that we understood what is that regulatory requirement that allowed this model to flourish and having understood that we then looked at uh, uh, where do we bring in the private sector uh, parties uh, to contribute uh, not only capital but expertise for both designing and also being part of operations and maintenance uh, for these systems so based on this business model is fully looking at uh, a case where Consumers are able to pay for the energy that is supplied to them, and this at least goes into sustainably operating and managing and managing the assets uh, that's been, that will be uh, developed over the course of this. We've set in place a model an SPV model which will allow these assets to be owned, maintained over the course of the life cycle of of, of the of the assets, and also being uh, within Ethiopia, looking at other camps. That's uh, where we really want to focus this, this business model.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thank you. Um, just so we're clear, can can you tell me a bit more about the energy sources for the, the mini-grid system? Like, what are the renewable sources that you're drawing on for that, that this project enables?
2: So we're looking at a hybrid model. Yes, uh, the Somali region, where we are deploying this uh, solution, really has uh, one of the highest uh, solar incidence rates in, in in Ethiopia. But we're also looking at the possibility where, for example, we are able to uh, manage, uh, let's say, the average uh, energy provided to a house in case sometimes you have bad weather or any kind of uh, technical fluctuations that will be there. Because we really want to serve consumers as if we're a really a micro utility. So we put in place all those, all those technical considerations to have this hybrid solar model at least. And also the regulations for mini-grid development in Ethiopia is very prescriptive when it comes to especially how do we balance uh, between the various uh, uh, sources. So at least on average, we are looking at least uh, 75% from renewable uh, solar sources for this mini-grid. And then we have a backup system over over the course of the
0: life cycle. So just finally then, could you tell us a bit about the adoption of this, what your kind of key lessons were from this and any sort of challenges you faced that you weren't expecting to face if you were thinking about rolling this out?
2: Just as to asset today, we have finally incorporated that SPV vehicle, uh, that's a, a private limited company in Ethiopia that will kickstart the business of uh, uh, deploying EPC and also management of, of, of these assets congratulations um, thank you thank you very much it's, it's been uh, not an easy journey but uh, we are very glad to hit this key milestone uh in the next uh, phases we'll try uh we are in the process of applying for the license so we need a special uh, license for mini grid deployment and operations in ethiopia and uh, that process uh, should take us let's say for the next uh, six months to be completed that we move full full time into into the EPC phase, and uh, we have a very ambitious uh, goal of being able to uh, bring on lights uh, like in, in a year's time. So that that the team is really uh, agile and really working to achieve this. In terms of key uh, key lessons learned over over this uh, period, we I, I can itemize. For example, uh, as you look at a mini grid development cycle, you want to look at the assessment phase. Being able to get the right data that is that is correct not only from uh, anchor clients but also at the household level it was one of the key challenges so anchor clients uh, were not maybe recording properly energy consumption energy usage over courses of period of, of time and this is data that is critically needed in addition to let's say technical assessments on these facilities to be able to build a solution uh, for this for these clients at the household level uh, It's a bit challenging trying to get from households uh, how much you spend because there's some level of sensitivity regarding incomes uh, at the household level. Uh, But over the course of this period, we've uh, understood that there's the need really to build relationships with these entities, uh, work with uh, humanitarian partners, hold their hand, deploy internal teams to be able to do this, uh, the collection of this data appropriately. So we really had to deploy our technical partners for humanitarian agencies in house over weeks to be able to collect this vital data, at the household level, we need to build appropriate relationships with the community leaders for them really to come board for us to get uh, the needed uh, uh, data. One of the other things that I would say maybe at the at the national level is around regulations. So mini grids, let's say as micro utilities, are heavily regulated, and you need a very strong regulatory framework with experience of uh, regulatory actors will be able to support initiatives like ours along the whole licensing process. And uh, luckily, by the time uh, we're about getting to get into the stage of incorporating uh, this SPV, uh, Ethiopia enacted a framework, uh, a policy for mini-grid investments. Uh, so it would be actually one of the first entities applying for a license under this uh, new policy. And uh, we hope at least for this to go very, very efficiently. I would also add that uh, key issues that uh, are very vital when we're looking at working in displacement settings is about uh, affordability, it's about uh, protection as such that uh, inclusion, especially of vulnerable uh, segments of the population. So we really need to de- develop a very uh, solid uh, framework uh, based on data to really uh, prove that at least uh, we are being inclusive as much as possible. Uh, consumers are also being protected. But at the same, at the same time, we are providing quality service uh, that consumers are happy with. Uh, We've set in place mechanisms that consumers can engage uh, with the operator of these mini grids, especially uh, for, for if things are not go- going right. So these are very critical that at least uh, we are seen as including everybody along along the population segments in these in initiatives
0: uh, such, as, such as this. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting reflections. Thank you. And so just finally, then, could you maybe just bring it back to the impact on the communities that you're working with the refugee communities? Maybe could you just give us a sense of what benefit you think this will provide to those communities? Like, what is the change going to be ultimately if these projects become scaled up?
2: Thank you. I would like to say that the communities, communities are very excited about this project and uh, we've had very extensive discussions with the, with the communities and as part of the regulation also, we've established a community electricity committee, uh, which will become the main interface with Mercy Corps and the operator of this initiative. Uh, In terms of direct impact, we see, of course, uh, direct access to electricity. These are communities that already spend large amounts of uh, the available income on on electricity provided through uh, diesel gensets. Uh, So basically, uh, these communities are already used to uh, some level of lighting. We just need to substitute uh, these for cleaner, cheaper affordable electricity than they are currently used to, and also more levels across the scale that you now have electricity to power at least anything you need that you want to acquire at, at your household level. So this gives more choice to households to sign up that they will now have electricity, even if you want to do small businesses at the household level. So we, we see direct impact over there. Secondly, I'd love to say that these communities are very entrepreneurial on their own. You go to these settings and you already see ice cream making shops operating on diesel uh, generators already. You see small businesses that are into uh, milling of cereals uh, already in the camps. So we intend to support this vigorously, not only with energy provision assets, but also to support the growth of these businesses so as part of this program you are investing heavily into improving growing these businesses the livelihood opportunities and we're working very much with our partners to see how we directly be able to support the growth of these businesses in the camp uh, as well so we see direct impact in improving incomes at the, at the household level once this initiative kickstarts in as well in terms of the broader camp-level management. Uh, of course, uh, security is very much uh, important, especially as relates to issues such as SGBV in the camps. Uh, we'll be able to provide electricity for communal spaces uh, such that at least uh, the places are littered and, and uh, lightened and, and all of that. And uh, of course, this is a model that also seeks to uh, support humanitarian agencies to green their operations so we are working with at, uh, at least uh, one uh, UN agency to see uh, how best uh, uh, this model could green the operation. In Mexico, we are heavily interested in procuring energy from this entity such that we'll be at the forefront of not only uh, speaking about some of these things, but also doing them and encouraging other uh, agencies in our setting to follow this path as uh, we all
0: seek to become sustainable organizations into the future. That's fantastic. Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and for sharing this really great news story, I think.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been great to stick with you and share with you this journey that we have been on
0: For my last interview on this episode, I spoke to Kevin Wangi from the German development agency GIZ about his work in Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. In collaboration with the Turkana County government, GIZ developed a mini grid system to provide electricity for host communities in the main town, Kalabayi. I began by asking Kevin to set out the particular challenges faced by the communities in Kakuma.
3: First of all, Kalobeyei itself is not only the host town, so it has both the refugees and the host communities. The whole area is called Kakuma. However, then it was divided into two. First, when the refugees started coming in in the early 90s, then they, uh, they were being hosted in Kakuma. And so it grew organically where as more refugees came, then the camp continued to increase. However, over the years, then, UNHCR, together with partners, including the UN Habitat, so there is a need to have an integrated settlement. And this settlement now is what was born as kalobeye Settlement and Host Town. So ideally, it was supposed to be that the refugees and host community need to live in the same area. But then because of the different cultures and uh, how people do their way of living, then the hosts uh, requested to have their own area, and that is what is called the host town, while now the refugees now live mostly in the settlement. So when we were coming in, and even before that, uh, mostly for uh, energy, I think when we started in from the 90s, uh, mostly for lighting, it was paraffin or, or kerosene, for example, So Kerosene lamps were the most uh, used, but then when technology started coming in, we have seen that solar lanterns become the biggest source of uh, lighting energy, then followed by solar home systems. And this is both in the refugee and the host town. However, for cooking energy, we find that still firewood and charcoal be- remains the highest energy source for cooking, which is a little bit challenging because it has an effect on the surrounding environment. And mostly this firewood is sourced or is, um, is sourced around the, the neighboring host town and then is supplied by the host community. So these are mainly the main sources of cooking and lighting energy uh, in this area.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you for setting that out. Now, could you tell us a bit about the project that you were involved with and, and what kind of change you were trying to make within the settlement?
3: The mini-grids in Kalopeyei were installed through a project that was a result-based mechanism uh, financing project uh, by DFID, which is, uh, is currently known as FCDO, uh, which provided a grant to NDEV and GIZ provided the technical assistance. Ideally, what DFID was looking at was to encourage private sector to be involved in many green mini-grids, mostly in the northern region of Kenya, that uh, have little access to sustainable and affordable energy. So this project was running from 2014 and it ended in 2020. So the grant was supposed to be around 44%, and here the grant supported 10 mini-grids uh, with a capacity of 300 kilowatt peak. Now, this included the Kalobeye mini-grids, which were 60 kilowatt peak in the settlement and 20 kilowatt peak in uh, the host town. So Kalobeye settlement and host town, as I said earlier, is an integrated settlement, and the development is already anchored in a plan and this plan is called Kalobeye Integrated Socioeconomic uh, Development Plan. And clean, affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy is a thematic area. So this uh, specific area as a potential area for uh, a mini-grid, since there was potential electricity demand, there was an actual physical plan, that is the houses were structured in a way, and also businesses in a certain area and social, and social institutions. And now this made it even easy for the design work, especially for the distribution network. Since then, there will be a lot of savings with regards to access. For example, two poles could access uh, a compound of around uh, 7 to 14 houses. So you see, this became an interesting site for GIZ to actually do a feasibility study. Therefore, um, so what happened is that one, we carried out a feasibility study for these areas and the others that the uh, fund was uh, supporting. And then we invited bids from private sector who wanted to do the actual development and operation of the mini-grids uh, in these areas. So fortunately, we put in the same lot Kalobiye Settlement and host town, so that to ensure that one mini-grid developer will be able to operate the two. We find that the two are um, approximately five or six kilometers apart, which is uh, really good because now it assists in also the operations of the area. So you find that the operator is able to move between the two.
0: Can you just clarify these mini grids? What are the sources of electricity for the mini grids? What's serving them?
3: The mini grids from... uh, the onset, the project uh, ensured or encouraged that they will become green mini grids. Therefore, while we were designing these mini grids, we designed them as solar mini grids, with also a component of diesel backup generator. So most of them are, usually have uh, solar as the principal, and also the with uh, battery uh, energy storage, and then we have diesel generator as a backup. However, I will talk about more on this. <laughs> on the challenges because uh, we find now the diesel generator is being used a little bit more in the settlement as opposed to the host town. So the 60 kilowatt peak has 120 kilowatt hours of battery storage.
0: So obviously the process that you outlined was very thorough, the, the planning, the tendering process that went into this, but when it came to actually delivery of the mini grid system, I wondered if you could talk us through some of the challenges that you kind of encountered, especially if we're thinking about whether we can replicate this model elsewhere in the world.
3: We, we had a lot of challenges. One, the site uh, was remote. In the beginning, when we were doing the feasibility studies, there was no actual... Tamak Road between the main town of the county that is Lodua up to kalobeye and so it was difficult to access this area, and mostly it was being accessed by air. And therefore, being a remote area, it had the challenges of actually doing the feasibility studies and ensuring that, one, you had to stay there for the whole time for you to be able to get the actual outputs uh, with regards to the same. We find that other challenges apart from that, as we continued, were There was also, the mini-grid sector was relatively new to private developers then. And uh, so there was also a little bit low interest in bidding for these sites, including the Calobeye Settlement and Host Town. So we find that we did not have an opportunity to have a wide range of uh, proposals from private sector with regards to who were interested in developing these mini-grids, and therefore we ended settling with those that we were able to receive, which worked out for us since the operator in Calo Bay Settlement and Town is doing a good job. And so this was one of the challenges. Another one was, uh, since it was a result-based um, mechanism, finance mechanism, we found that the one who was supposed to be a fund manager was actually a bank. Uh, however, the bank did not have the technical uh, capacity to carry out this work of ensuring that they monitor what the private developer is doing, as reviewing the technical documents with regards to the generation, distribution, and also customer acquisitions, ETC. So they were mainly, they were heavy on the finance side, but had li- uh, limited capacity with regards to the technical uh, part. So we found that as GIZ, we ended up taking over the technical oversight of the project, while we supported now um, the bank to in just giving them the go-aheads with regards to uh, releasing finances when the technical side was done. So this was also one of the major challenges while uh, supporting an RBFR project. Then there was the length, lengthy and costly processes in securing licenses, and also land acquisition. So, for example, for you to operate and develop a mini grid uh, in Kenya, you had to get the approvals from the regulator. The regulator also has a raft of measures or processes that are required for you to get these licenses that is, the generation license and also the tariff approvals. So, we found that since the beginning for an operator, for the operator in Kalobe to begin the process up to when they got their final approval, we found that it took close to more than one and a half years for this to actually happen. And therefore, it was a limbo where the operator has already finished uh, the construction, has already connected the customers, and therefore, and the tariff approval is not yet out. So That was uh, one of the challenges that we got. And so the regulatory environment was a little bit slow at that point. Also, land acquisition uh, was also a challenge, uh, uh, specifically in um, Kalobiye. So we found a situation where uh, we needed a a big piece of land to be given by the regional government for these projects to take place. However, this was reduced. And so it also took a lengthy process because... They wanted to understand, one, why would you want this uh, large piece of land for your project? And so these negotiations also took time. However, the land was availed and having been availed, then uh, it's also now available even for expansion of the generation plant once required. And this is what is happening right now. So also managing community expectations, because as I mentioned earlier, the host and the, settled, uh, and the refugees do not live in one area, so we find them living in two uh, separate areas. And therefore, the host will hear the refugees uh, have a 60 kilowatt peak power plant and a 100 kVA genset, and they will say, we want the same two for our site. So, however, the host, <laughs> the demand is a little bit low, so they couldn't justify having the same uh, backup generator for them and therefore these expectations needed to be managed even with regards to casual work for example so when the activities at the site are being done one needed to manage expectations that only casual work could be done by the locals and the technical needed to be imported from outside the county and and, and things like this. So there's also limited funding uh, so there was limited funding for the mini grades. Currently, the settlement has approximately a population of uh, 40,000, and that translates to roughly 6,000 households. And the mini-grids currently, specifically for the one in the settlement, has connected approximately 500 customers, 300 being households. So, and this was because of a limitation of the funds. If the funds were more at the onset, then we could have seen more households being connected. So there was limited of funds and therefore we called it a pilot project. However, this pilot project has borne a lot of fruits and the operator has received funding to increase the generation capacity by approximately 0.5 megawatt and a storage of approximately one megawatt hour. And we are supporting them as GIZ through another project called the Energy Solutions for Displacement Settings project to do partial uh, distribution network in the settlement. The settlement has a medium voltage and a low voltage uh, distribution network. So we are doing a partial expansion to this. And here we target that roughly 2,500 connections can be made from the activities that are currently ongoing. Another challenge is that more subsidies are required in the displacement settings. You know, the UNCR policy of do no harm uh, should also be in the forefront of our minds when we are thinking about electric, affordable electricity. As I said earlier, the DFID, now FCDO, RBF subsidies were capped at maximum of 50%. However, for this uh, this displacement settings, we took it up to 82% so that the tariff could mirror the national one, which is approximately 0.13 euros per kilowatt hours for the households and approximately 0.17 euros per kilowatt hour for the businesses and social institutions. Another challenge that has a reason is that as we had anticipated it being a pilot, there was uh, this idea from the back of our minds that this operator will be able to expand to the whole settlement, and the settlement is divided into three villages. So we had envisioned that when more funding comes in, they'll be able to expand to the three villages of the settlement. However, due to how probably the licenses were approved, we find that another operator was granted a license for the last village. And being granted a license to operate in the last village the operator then proceeded to give their own financial models to the regulator and a different tariff has been approved. And this tariff is approximately four times what the operator in the first two villages has. And so we could see a conflict there where there could be migration, for example, by businesses who would move from the village with the higher or expensive tariff to the one that low has low, uh, a lower tariff. Or also conflicts between the residents of the settlements, that is the refugees who will say, why is that operator charging lower than what we are being charged? So those are the challenges that we were able and are currently facing in the settlement and uh, host town. But again, as I said, uh, through a different project for, by the GIZ, we are assisting the private sector who had the 60 kilowatt peak and the 20 kilowatt peak to expand. Uh, While we are still offering technical assistance to the operator who is in the third village, uh, so that at least, again, all residents of the settlement in the host town are able to access affordable, sustainable and reliable electricity.
0: Thank you, Kevin. Was there anything else that you'd like to talk about?
3: Yeah. So I think in the end, we asked ourselves, that: Is this, could this be replicated anywhere and my thought is yes, uh, mini grids offer um, reliable and sustainable electricity, and where funding is presented and most and mostly subsidies is presented to private sector, this could be uh, affordable both to uh, households in these areas, businesses and social institutions. We see this model for mini grids being attractive to private sector where it could also find ourselves in a situation where institutions who mostly rely on either diesel generators or self generation from uh, captive solar that they will be able now to connect to a mini grid where now the operator becomes one so it it removes the burden from mostly institutions on operation of energy systems and so it becomes only a headache, for lack of a better word, or it only becomes a responsibility of um, the operator to maintain, operate, and provide electricity to institutions, households, and social, and also businesses. Businesses could also spark growth with PUEs, that is um, productive use of energy, uh, where now more salons or hair, hair salons or welding workshops could be put in, in these uh, settlements or refugee settings, and also electric cooking for the households. And this then could relieve the pressure of firewood and charcoal for cooking. However, in the end, a lot of technical assistance is required, carrying out of feasibility studies to inform private sector for the potential of these areas, so that then it reduces the costs some of these uh, settlements or humanitarian settlements are in remote areas and therefore reaching them could be a little bit difficult. However, when we find technical assistance to carry out feasibility studies, both uh, technical and financial, this could inform private sector and also reduce their cost and could play a role in reducing the actual cost of electricity uh, for potential clients. Thank you.
0: Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. It sounds like such fascinating work and, and a real sort of success story, I think.
3: Yes, it is, uh, Benjamin. And uh, I would say thank you very much for hosting us and hosting me uh, for your podcast.
0: And that is it for this episode of Power for Refugees. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this such an interesting range of guests and different contexts. And it's it's just really fascinating to hear more about the work that they've been trying. In particular, things that actually maybe didn't go so well, but which are really valuable lessons for the future. There's a second episode in this podcast special, which is looking at fuel for cooking. It should be in your feed right now. So I hope you can go and listen to that. And if you want to find out more about the project or about the work of the Environment and Society Programme at Chatham House more broadly, please do visit our website at www.chathamhouse.org or follow them on Twitter at ch environment. We'll be back very soon with some more episodes, but till then, thank you very much for listening.